go ahead and be opening in your Bibles to James. Uh, that's where we've been, right? And so here we are, we're in this last, like this week and next week are our last two times to get to be in this book of James. And I hope that as we've gone through it, you have been in a place where you've been able to say like, man, I've gotten a lot out of everything that we've done uh, so far in there. And, and I hope that you've grown from it. Um, I think we can all agree that we live in an arrogant culture where we think we're the best at something, right? We live we live in a place where we literally are like, like I'm the greatest. Um, and we might not like say that we're the greatest, but we live in a culture that that no matter what we do, we're sitting there and like, like we feel like we're the greatest, and like the the personality we give off is like I'm better than everyone else, and and maybe you're like, oh, that's not me. Um, think about something that you like and something that you're good at. And think about like somebody coming in and trying to do it. You're like, no, I'm better than you and you're trash. Let me tell you how you need to do it. Um, we live in this culture where we're constantly like trying to tell everyone what to do and all these things. Um, and this has been like a theme um, in Jane so far. And that we've seen him like repeat is this idea of like, hey, uh, like you're in a culture where everyone like feels like they're the best. Watch it. And it really applies to us today, um, and it's just arrogance that radiates from us. Uh, yet when we think about the idea of arrogance and pride and, and pomp, we have to think of the idea of which sin does God talk about more that he hates. Um, it might be a little bit weird, but I want us to start with just a short prayer this evening. Um, so let's go ahead and pray, and, and then we'll like really get into it. Father, as we start into this lesson tonight, um, I ask that you please open our hearts to allow us to examine ourselves and not look at others, to allow us to not think about other people that might be struggling with this, but, but look at ourselves and, and really dig deep inside of ourselves and find out if we are struggling with these things. Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, what James is about to do is he's about to talk about pride in a way that, like, I don't think a lot of us would think about pride. Um, I don't think a lot of us would ever, like, like when we're talking about these things that James is about to talk about, be like, yeah, bro, that's arrogant. Um, but he's about to go into this uh, in chapter 4. Um, and, and really bring up an idea that I don't know if I had ever thought about it in this idea of pride, but it, it truly is. He says, starting in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Okay, I want us to take a break right there. It says, okay, how dare you sit there and say, like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go do this tomorrow. I'm going to take myself and, and I'm going to go into this the next and next year and I'm going to go make a profit. He says, why, why are you talking like that? What on earth? You don't even know what you're going to be doing like a year from now or tomorrow and whatever like time it may be. He says, look at this. What I want you to realize is that every single breath you breathe is in the hands, is like in the hands of God. Like you, you have this idea and this concept of like, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do this. And I'm like, and I don't know how many of us in this room 
are like this, but he would sit there and say, like, do you have any control over this in the slightest? You have absolutely none. And, and, and I think about it, and, and I think we're all guilty of this. And then he makes this comparison, and he says that we're a mist. Um, right? He says we're a mist that appears for a little bit of time um, and then vanishes away. And, and as I read this, it makes me think of like a boiling pot of water. Uh, right? I don't know if you guys have ever made spaghetti or macaroni and cheese or anything that goes in boiling water. Uh, those are my specialties. I made spaghetti last night and set off the smoke detector. Um, <laughs> it was awful. Uh, it was the meat. Actually, it was delicious. Um, yeah. Um, but boiling this water, and if you think about it, when you're looking at like a boiling pot of water and you have the steam that comes out of it, right? So like when the steam leaves the pot, it's like what, two seconds until it's like disappeared into the air? It's not a long time at all. And he's sitting here and he's making our com life comparison to this idea of like, look, your, your life is a vapor. Your life is this, this steam that rises up um, and like disappears super quickly uh, right off the bat. Um, and I think like a lot of times when we think about this, uh, we think about it in a way where we're sitting there we're like, yeah, like life flies by, right? Don't blink, like you're five, and then you blink, and then you're 25, and then you blink again, and you're 85, and you're about to die. And it's like a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times when we read this verse, we're like, man, life just blinks by fast. Um, and I think really what he's talking about is I think he's trying to make this comparison of our life in, in like the midst of eternity. When he sits here and says, look, look, take these two seconds. Imagine for yourself a second, the two seconds that, that, that mist, that that vapor is visible, that that vapor from the steaming pot of water is there, that two seconds, and how much that impacts your life, and how really little of time that is in your life. And compare that to your entire life, and then he says, I want you to think about this. That mist and vapor next to your life, if you take your life next to eternity, like, the vapor is there for significantly longer. That vapor is going to last a lot longer than your life does next to eternity. And yet we are sitting here, and, and we have the almost, like James like, and yet you have the audacity to sit there and make a statement, like, I'm going to go do this down the road, or I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to do that. And he says, look, you are nothing. You are literally a mist and vapor in the eternity that God has created for every single one of us. He says if, if we're making plans apart from the sovereignty of God, you're prideful. And if we were to have someone walk into this room right now, or, or maybe uh, you could walk into any room, but if you were to have someone walk in this room right now, and they were to walk in the door, walk in and be like, hey guys, um, I'm like super pumped. Like maybe you have a friend and they're like, I just got a job in New York, and I'm, I'm so excited, and I have an apartment, and I have like a ton of friends. I'm going to go up there, and it's like a two-year job, and it's like it's sort of an internship, and I'm going up there, and I'm working, and it's going to be awesome, and I'm going to get all these great experiences. And we would be like, congrats, that's so awesome. We're so excited for you. We're so proud of you. That's amazing. And we don't think of that person coming in and telling us, like, man, I just got this internship, this job. It's going to be great. We're like... That's not arrogant. But James looks at us and he actually describes it as this idea of this idea of being so boastful. Verse 15 says, 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And before we get to verse 17, I want us to stop right there. This hit home to me. Because I think about, like, as I'm living right now, and I think it's probably like most of us in this room are living, uh, is like a very arrogant mindset. I think James would look at like how most of us, and like, this is not me like trying to be like, slam on this and slam, it's me like straight up looking at our culture and like the way we treat things and the way we say things. James is saying, look, when you live that life, that's arrogant. That, that is an arrogant lifestyle. The lifestyle that we're in right now is this arrogant. And he says, look, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And it says it's so plain to see, and it, and it says it's so plain to see, that I often wonder, like, like, why don't we say that more? Why isn't this a statement of, like, Lord willing? And, like, a lot of times when we think of, like, the phrase Lord willing, we think about that idea, and we're like, ah, oh, so old people say, like, Lord willing, we're going to go do this. Daniel's giving me the head nod, because, like, it is. Like, it's an old person thing to say, but where did they ever get that phrase? It comes straight out of James. And it sits here and says, what you should do is say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to live. If the Lord wills, I'm going to leave this classroom in 20 minutes or 18 minutes or whatever it is when this class is over. If the Lord wills, I'm going to take another breath. If the Lord wills, I'm going to go to college. If the Lord wills, I'm going to graduate college. If the Lord wills, I'm going to get married. If the Lord wills, I'm going to go to school tomorrow. Why do we not say this more when the scripture so clearly asks us to do so? I think that there are two issues um, on our hearts why we don't like ever discuss this. I think one of them um, would be the sovereignty of God. Uh, and that's like a, a weird thing. I think a lot of us is like, yeah, we're not going to say if the Lord wills. Um, because that like sovereignty is like it's up to God what we do. Um, I think a lot of us don't want to necessarily acknowledge the fact of like, yeah, when, when I choose something, I'm going to let God choose it for me. Um, and I think that, that that can really cause us to be like, if I say the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. That means like, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. And if I'm saying the Lord wills, then I better be doing it in service of him. So like, and, and as I was preparing this, it made me think about like this idea of college. Um, some people are not going to ever say, like, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go to college. Because, like, in their brain, when they go to college, they want to go live a life that's, like, full of sexual immorality and alcohol and all these things. And so they're not going to say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go to college. And if the Lord wills, I'm going to do well in class. Because in their mind, they don't want the sovereignty of God to control that future that they have. And, and that sounds like a super, like, weird, far-fetched thing. Um, because a lot of times it's just like, well, we just don't say that in our culture. But I think that, that one of the strongest things there is like, like if we um, understand the sovereignty of God and like his, our desire to let him lead our lives, we're going to be willing to say, well, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. I think another thing is submission to God. Um, and this idea of like, are we submitting to God? And are we going to allow ourselves to submit to him? And that's going to allow us to say if the Lord wills. Um, sometimes, are we going to ask, like, what do you want me to do tomorrow, God? 
Um, and we're going to touch on this in like a minute, um, some, but I wanted to like discuss it right now. Uh, if we were to ask God this question, what would his answer be? If we were to look at God and say, what do you want me to do tomorrow? What is his answer going to be? Do we know? Um, here's the thing. I think that like, if you've been in church since you were five years old or zero years old, uh, or if you spent any time in scripture, like it literally takes probably 20 minutes of reading anywhere in the New Testament to figure out somewhat what the Lord's will is for you. Now I say that very lightly because like, like it takes obviously a lot of study to sit there and say, well, I know what the Lord's like plan is. I know exactly, not exactly, but I know generally like how he wants me to lead. But if you sit there and you open up as a Christian and, and you sit there and, and you read a passage of scripture and you have a general understanding of scripture and we sit there and, and we understand it, um, we know sort of what his answer is going to be if we say, what do you want me to do tomorrow, God? And if we aren't doing it, if we're not submitting to that, then the question will be what's missing. And that could be another reason that we don't necessarily say, Lord willing, I'm going to do this, because we don't have that idea of a desire to submit to him. Um, even though it's like up to him, and not to be a negative Nancy or anything, um, but like if we live through this lesson, which is um, incredibly sad, we're totally at his will when we think about it. Um, and I think we really need to ask ourselves something. Are we really in submission to God's will? Uh, and it's coming off this idea of like you're arrogant. And I, I think like when I'm thinking about this, do I look at other people to find out if I'm arrogant? Like, man, I'm not a bragger like they are. Therefore, I'm humble and I'm great and I'm, I'm fine and I'm amazing. And uh, like they're bragging nonstop. So I'm not arrogant. Are we looking at that and allowing it to be arrogant? Or are we really looking at ourselves in application to this verse and questioning, am I arrogant? Then it gets to verse 17. I wish we could spend so much more time on each of these. Um, it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And this is kind of like a common verse in a way. Um, like, I think we hear it a lot in church. Uh, but like, when we're thinking about sin, a lot of times we think about something that's prohibited, right? Like, like, like I'm gonna imagine, like for a second, like, like you throw like sexual immorality or alcohol or um, like cussing or I'm trying to think about like drugs or lying or cheating or stealing, and we like throw it up and we like toss it underneath that thing. It's like prohibited, prohibited. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's like we think about sin as as something that's prohibited. Um, what James does is he makes it clear that, okay, you can, like, do the wrong thing, that's a sin, but if you don't do the right thing, that's just as much a sin. And we kind of, like I said, we talked about this a minute ago, but if God had complete control over my body and over my tongue right now, or like in our world every single day, what would we be doing? If God had complete control over my body and my tongue, what would we be doing? Because if our calling, like what we should be doing based in scripture is clear and we're not doing it, then he's like, you're living in sin. And that's such a hard thing to think about. But this is the overall theme of James, right? Do, don't just hear. Um, 
If we think of sin as just resisting temptation, we won't realize that sin is also resisting God. If we just think about sin as resisting temptation, we won't realize that there's also sin in resisting God. Um, have we looked at ourselves and truly surrendered to God? If we think about this idea of like what he talked about right in chapter um, chapter 3, uh, nope, I'm wrong, chapter 1, um, when he talks about like if you think you're religious and don't take care of the orphans and widows, and it's this idea of like, of true religion is taking care of orphans and widows. Um, are we, are we like doing that? Or is that something that we just like hear about and live it? Because if we know that the right thing to do is take care of people who are in need or take care of people who aren't of Christ and yet we don't do it, he says, we're living in sin. Um, are we going to keep living in rebellion and keep doing like what we want to do, or are we going to go ahead and say, okay, James, okay, inspired word of God, I'm going to take what you're saying and go go forward with it. Um, and then we get to James chapter 5, and I think, like, there have been a lot of strong warnings and, like, strong language in this book so far, and I think, like, for this classroom right now, I think that this might be the strongest warning in this entire I want us to read, well, before we read, we're about to read something, and it's going to be, like, really easy for us to be like, nah, man, like, that's not applying to me, or uh, I've never, like, taken advantage of anyone, or anything like that. Um, but I want us to, like, let this passage not just be something where we sit there and we're like, yeah, other people need to work on this. But allow ourselves to take this passage and sort of say, okay, how can this apply to me? What can I take from it? What is it saying? Um, and like before we, before we discredit this as something that's like not talking to us, let's make sure for a fact that when we read this, like he's not talking to us. Um, because in reality, like what we're about to, it's going to talk about like a certain um, class of people. But the, in reality, we all live in a world uh, we're like we're generally in the United States of America, um, a middle class country. Like the majority of people are middle class, uh, and so like if, if <laughs> I'm like laughing, I don't laugh at this. I don't know why I just started laughing at this. But like this kind of like describes the middle class. I googled like middle class. This came up and I was like, uh, this definitely describes the middle class. Um, but maybe like if you look at this and you're like, yeah, that is something that I have in my family. Like any of those. Like, this, I think, is talking to you based on the rest of the world. Um, and, and so this is, this is really tough. So let's make sure, as we read this, that, that what we read um, is not going to apply to us by, like, making sure that it does not. This is, like I said, the toughest thing um, in all of this book, maybe all of Scripture, for our culture to live. Um, in verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. No one's to stop. He starts this out by saying, okay, 
Those of you who have some money, those of you who have a little bit more money in the world, <laughs> the language he uses is weep and howl. That, that is strong terminology. And he's talking about this idea of the judgment that's coming towards us. And like, he says, the riches, they're rotting and your garments are moth-eaten. And it's like, like we're sitting in this place where like, like we have extra cash to spend on this. We have extra cash to spend on that. Like I can afford to go buy an Xbox One. I can afford to, to like own two hockey jerseys. I can afford to have two cars in my household. Like I can afford that. He's, he's literally looking at this and saying like, like you have these riches. They're all in your life. You're so, so blessed. And then he says, he, he says this phrase like it's evidence against us. Uh, I think it's really tough because like when, when somebody has money and they pass away and it's like, hey, they were loaded and like all their money's like going to kids were like, oh, they were so blessed. Like, look at the great life. They, look at that massive house. And it's like, man, like they had the life. They were the most blessed people there possibly were. And, it, and James is like, whoa, what are we saying right here? Those are not a blessing. And he starts by the saying the word evidence. It's like he paints this picture of this courtroom. And I want you to imagine for a minute, like you were to walk down, you're on trial for murder. You walk in, and you like you sit down in the chair. I'm like totally extreme right now. But like we gotta we gotta go extreme. And and they're like, okay, um, Ben, uh, here is a gun. It has your fingerprints on it. Oh, like this is after like they found the dead body. Um, it's like Ben, here's a gun with your fingerprints on it. It's like all right. And there's a bullet that was shot from this gun. Like, here's this bullet that was inside of the dead body. It's like, okay, here's somebody who says they saw you shoot this person. It's like, all right. Oh, wait, they took a video of you shooting this person. Look, here's your face. Like, like imagine, imagine, it's like, okay, I was the one who committed murder. That's essentially what it's saying. And he looks, 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 at, look, looks at this. And he says, these riches, when we're looking at this from the side of a courtroom, these riches are evidence that you didn't, like, give to people in need, that you didn't give to the orphans, that you didn't give everything you had to the widows, that you weren't trying to live this idea of true religion, and you weren't trying to practice everything that the inspired word of God just said was true religion. And instead of investing in other people, instead of investing in those in need, we find ourselves investing in ourselves. And it's to nothing but our own detriment. Do we love stuff for ourselves or for others? And like, as I'm starting into life and, and like actually having to make money and, and like, as it makes more sense to me every single day of my life and I look and I'm like, man, do I, do I, should I really be saving up for my children and my grandchildren to like have a luxurious life when I die? Or should I be looking at the people today who don't have the gospel of Christ, and should I be sharing it with them? Because James says, if I know what I need to do, and I don't do it, then that's sin. This passage of scripture hit me really, really hard. And I think it all started when I read the phrase, weep and howl. Because our culture and our church world doesn't pay very much attention to this passage in the sense of like, this is something that we might struggle with. And yet he says, you should weep and howl for the judgment that is coming upon you. 
we've got to pay more attention to this. It gets to verse 4. It says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed in your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is sitting here, and it's talking about this idea of, like, like don't think you're going to get away with anything. Um, we saw you keep back money from those people. Um, God doesn't miss anything. I want us to go on to verse 5 and 6. Um, there's a really cool lesson in verse 4, but, but you guys can do it. Um, it says in verse 5, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have contempt and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It says, like, you lived a soft life. And, and like, when I look at myself, like, like guess what? I've lived a soft life. Um, and, and he sits here and, and by the inspiration of God is saying, a believer does not live a soft life. A believer does not do that. We don't put ourselves in the best situation possible. A believer of God is 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 not going to, um, someone who practices true religion is not going to sit back and do nothing and enjoy their life because that's a life of self-indulgence. When we read this scripture and we tune out the other verses and we tune out, maybe not all the other verses, but when we read this like little passage of scripture right here and we tune out everything in the world, everything that we've ever heard around us and we read nothing but this and I, w- I wish that we could like literally clear our heads of everything else and read that. Does it make sense biblically for me to live in wealth and luxury? I'm not saying like does it make sense biblically for me to like make money. I'm saying does it make sense biblically for us to live in wealth and luxury? Do I care about the injustices of the world or am I just fattening myself up to the day of slaughter? And the worst thing that we can do in this conversation right now is like, be like, well, uh, well, you know what? Like trying to make it like a legalistic thing where we're like, well, I think we could do this. Or we're like, well, what about this car or this house or this or that? Um, Pagani Choir, super cool. Um, but but we consider, the worst thing we can do is make this some legalistic matter. Um, because as believers, we're not characterized by what we have on earth. If we're sitting there and we're asking the question, well, okay, I get it. I get that I shouldn't be laying myself up like treasures. I get that I shouldn't be living a life of self-indulgence. But do you think I could have this? If we're asking that question, that our hearts are so clearly on the earth and not on heaven, then it's like, then it's tough to think about. We can't be asking questions like, can I have this or have that? Do we focus on the idea that our life on earth is a vapor and that there's an eternity out there? That's so much longer than anything we can imagine. It's one of the toughest topics there is, but I challenge us as we go into the world to understand that we're just a vapor. And there are things that mean so much more than anything we have here on earth. Let's get in a circle and then we'll pray.